recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. You're listening to DC Public Library on Full Service Radio at the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. This is an episode of Get Lit, our literary and book-related series. I'm your host, Victor, manager of the labs at DC Public Library. In this episode, I'm joined by authors Brianna McDaniel and Seda Elliott. Hey, Brianna and Seda, how are you guys? Hi. This is Brie. Hey, Victor. Thanks so much for hosting us. We, uh, no, I guess you. we thought we might be able to meet in person, but it's just as good to do it remotely in our safely sequestered right. <laughs> apartments during the pandemic. Yeah, well, you. well, thank you for, for joining me. Um, can I ask where you guys are tuning in from? So I, this is Brie, and I'm... Um, in my apartment in Petworth in DC. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> and Seda, how about yourself? I am in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, in my apartment. <laughs> Great. Well, I wanted to also read your introductions. I'll start up with yours, Brie, and then maybe we can read you can read from your book. Um so Brianna J. McDaniel is a sure. children's literature scholar and author of debut picture book, Hands Up. She is pursuing a PhD in, at Cambridge University, where her research focuses on representations of Black children in contemporary picture books. She has an MA in children's literature from Simmons College and is an alumna of Emory University. She is the co-founder of Researchers Exploring Inclusive Youth Literature, or RIO, its acronym, and is currently organizing a conference in Glasgow and Transatlantic Conversations in Research on Inclusive Youth Literature. She is from College Park, Georgia. And Bree, do you also live in the U- in the United Kingdom? Or is it yeah, that so I go back and forth. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I go back and forth just a little bit. Okay. Um, and Real, the organization Real. that I have with... Um, yeah, Joshua Simpson. Mm-hmm. Our conference was in 2019, so our next okay, conference that's in 2019. Will be that was in 2019. 2021. Got you. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, well, before you read from your picture book, hands up. Um, I was just curious about your career mm-hmm. as a children's literature scholar. Um, how did you end up in that career path? Um, so I went to Simmons university to get an MFA um, in writing for children. I had a fantastic mentor at Emory University. Um, Her name is Dr. Nagyalti Warren. And um, she had gone to Simmons and they had this program and it was exciting and it was a terminal degree and then I could teach. um, And that was the plan. But then I got to Simmons and I um, was able to really engage in um, critical race studies as a 
tool to critique children's literature. And then I started really getting into gender studies as a tool, uh, Black feminist theory as a tool, food studies as a tool. And I decided that I really wanted to see how all of that could come together um, to build some scholarship that I hope is helpful. And so, yeah, that's what I did. Your current research sounds very fascinating. Um, can you tell us more about that? Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing my dissertation right now. So, I mean, <laughs> thank you, Zeta. <laughs> <laughs> So I talk about it all the time with myself. That's why I'm laughing because I'm always talking to to myself and being like, ah, so when <laughs> Cynthia Dillard talked about uh, in darkened feminist epistemology, anyway, um, that's how I talk to myself. That's the voices in my head. Um, so <laughs> I look at representations of Black children. <laughs> I look at representations of Black children as food in contemporary picture books. Um, mm. And I'm looking at these representations in what I'm, what I'm calling sites of aggression, which, is, which are um, churches. <laughs> this, man, when you say it out loud, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, so these sites of aggressions are churches, um, domestic spaces like the home and community centers in some spaces, um, and schools, and I'm looking at how uh, respectability politics and surveillance um, makes it so that these representations of Black children as food kind of offers them up to be consumed, um, literally and figuratively, and literarily, um, and so that's that's what I'm doing. Great. <laughs> Well, whenever you're ready to read from Hansop, go ahead. Oh, great. So this is Hands Up by Brianna J. McDaniel, illustrated by Shane W. Evans. Um, and here it is. Greet the sun, bold and bright, tiny hands Peekaboo, hands up. Morning, baby. Time to get dressed. Hands up. And that's my daddy voice. This makes more sense if you're like reading along (laughs) with the book and seeing the pictures. Stretch high, almost there. Hands up. Uh oh. Gotta get clean. Reach for the sink. Hands up. Come on, little one. Dry your tears. Here, hold the bun. Hands up. And I just, yeah, I hope this is like translating well because. (laughs) (laughs) Ready for takeoff. Hands up. Ooh, please pick me, Miss B. Got my hands up.
Adventure books live up top. Reach high, tippy toes, hands up. Graceful like Miss Misty, fifth position, hands up. Racing fast, wind whistling, hands up. It's all right, baby girl. I'll help. Hands up. The music flows through us. Amazing grace. In praise and worship. Hands up. On the court, fired up, jump ball. Hands up. For the win, defense. Hands up. On top of the world, trophy to the sky, hands up. We begin small, but we grow big. Together, we are mighty. High fives all around, hands up. And as one, we say, hands up. And so the final page is filled with signs that say no human is illegal. Water is life. Black lives matter. Love your neighbor. Spread love and lift every voice. And as I've often been reminded, there's another sign. It's a little flag that has a heart in it. Um, And that's love. Thank you, Brie. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so I know that your niece was sort of the inspiration or part of the inspiration for the book. Um, what was her reaction um, when she saw the book or when you've read it for her? Um, I, I think she likes the book. So the reason why <laughs> that whole story is that I, I wrote the book And the first time I wrote the book, it was actually a short story and it was called Rise Up. And it was about a little girl who got lost in um, during um, some an uprising with some people might call a riot. And I would call it uprising after um, there was a police shooting, police killing. And she got lost in the uprising. Um, of the people in her community and she was searching for her brother and she um, went to what she called her haven spaces and um, was looking for her brother, couldn't find him. Um, And so that was one of the first drafts of it. And then it turned into another story um, where we kind of like walked through the life of two different characters, a black girl, and a black boy um, that did not end well. Um, they, at the end, both came into contact with police officers. Um, and so I, I'd written all these different drafts of this story that was my pro, um, that was me processing um, at the time in 2014 when I first started writing this book, what had happened to Mike Brown in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And um I sent it to some folks who were editors 
And they were like, yeah, you have to have hope. This book doesn't have any hope. These stories don't really have any hope. They're quite sad. Um, and I was like, yeah, I don't have hope. <laughs> I'm pretty sad. I'm pretty, I'm pretty angry. Um, and since these books are a reflection of how I'm feeling right now, I don't know how to um, inject hope into these stories. So I kind of set it to the side and didn't think about it until I went home um, in, I don't know, I guess the winter of 2014 and got to spend time with my nieces and my nephews. And I realized just how, you know, you know, I mean, honestly, how truly glorious kids are. They bring so much to conversations and the spaces they inhabit. Um, And I think that they are kind of, um, they are, they're not given their due for um, what they bring as far as, you know, hoping for the future and enjoying the present. Um, And my nieces and my nephews were showing me that um, in our different interactions, going to the movies, going to birthday parties, um, just hanging out. And so I wrote what I thought I would want to see for my nieces and my nephews. Um, and my niece, Taylor, you know, she was kind of my it's, it's really interesting inspiration to, for this little girl, Viv. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear yeah. sort of kind of the origin story of how it started from a place of like maybe sadness. But when you read this book, like you can't help but smile. (laughs) Um, You can't help but feel a lot of love. Um, So it's really good. I think you achieve that. You achieve that goal of bringing joy um, to your knees and, and young people. Seva, do you have any reaction to, to the reading? So are you there? I am. I'm sorry, Victor, you're going in and out. So I'm, I'm catching maybe every third word. Was that question for me? Yeah, no, I, I asked if you had any um, reaction to the reading. If I had a reading? No, a reaction, a reaction to Bree's reading. A reaction. Okay. <laughs> well, she's fantastic. She makes it really dynamic. I think story time is challenging. And I, I, I don't often work with really young kids, but I think Brianna strikes me as a primary specialist and it takes um, a real um, soft touch to be able to talk about something that is difficult and painful and traumatic um, for a lot of not only children, but communities And I think the way that she models um, reading the story and having it be so engaging in different voices, and it is an entire community talking about it. I think that Mm -hmm. can be really useful, not only for children, but for parents who, you know, might be wondering how they can talk about it with their kids or maybe haven't been talking about it because it's just too scary or too difficult. Um, So, yeah, I love that she that she took it on. Writing about it for teenagers is one thing, but writing about it. For younger children, that's that's a real challenge, and she does it beautifully. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for saying that, that uh, because it really it does mean a lot to hear kind of that reflection. Um, because I mean, like, if I'm being honest, I was like, wow, 
So my first book ever to be published is going to be like a direct, you know, my direct processing of Hands Up, Don't Shoot. This book is probably not going to do <laughs> do what I hope that it does. And people will take it a lot of different places. And um, I guess I just have to let it go and be grateful that this book is getting out there um, and hopefully people will be able to um, engage with it. So it's thank you for reflecting back. um, Yeah. Um, You mentioned that in those initial stories you wrote, um, a lot of people said no to you um, or said it wouldn't make, it was too sad. How did you sort of persevere or found your your strength to to get beyond that and and get the book published. Uh, I have a very not. I had a very non conventional um, pathway into um, publishing. My editor at Dial was um, a friend of mine who was in. Uh, at Simmons with me. And so I queried her without really knowing that I was querying her. And um, so that was, I, I didn't, it, I didn't go like a conventional way into getting hands up published. And I did not persevere with the book. I gave up on it. Um, <laughs> I put it away. Um, and I didn't really think about it until you know, I don't know, I was until I was spending time with my nieces and nephews and realized that my hope for the future was that they live lives that are um, liberated and healthy and happy. Um, and so my hope for their future became the hope that pushed me back to hands up. Mm. And then I just rewrote it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about the coll- collaboration with Shane Evans, um, the illustrator for the book? What was that like? Um, there wasn't a ton of collaboration with the with the um, pictures I wrote when I was first sending it out. I didn't really have. Um, I, you know, I went to Simmons for the MFA, right? But I did not get an MFA. So the crafting of a manuscript, building out pagination, um, thinking about where the page turns, what happened for this picture book. These are all things that are part of the editing process that I had no idea about. Also, leaving space for uh, the illustrator's interpretation of the words wasn't something that I had a ton of um, connection to, right? Because I was learning how to critique picture books and children's literature, not necessarily how to create them. And so I wrote uh, some notes, some, or what I would think are like maybe illustrator notes, but I think Shane had a very clear vision um, for building out this little girl and her slice of life that we see in Hands Up. And so, um, I was I was ecstatic when he said yes, and very grateful for the final product as well. It came out really well. <laughs> cool. 
Um, do you have any other upcoming sort of books or projects that you're eager to share with 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 us? Or are you just so? I mean, eager? sure, okay. I do have other product <laughs> or projects, but um, I I am looking forward to sharing them um, when everything is confirmed. Yeah. But yeah, I'm grateful that I get to still have opportunities for my stories to get out in various ways. I mean, probably the most important project right now for me, the most critical one, I mean, as far as timing is concerned, is my dissertation. So right. <laughs> yeah, shout out to my supervisor at Cambridge, Rafi. <laughs> You're amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you have a lot of time to focus on that right now. Um, so hopefully you, you, you get a lot of it done. <laughs> um, how long before you think you complete it or have to defend it? <laughs> I, um, I, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. Um, Do you have a yeah. date set for your defense? I, I had a plan. I had a plan. I had a plan to submit May in May and okay. to um, have it sent out to the my um, examiners and to hopefully defend in June or July. I was supposed to be teaching at a summer school in Antwerp, Belgium, um, but that with everything that's happening, um, all of those plans have kind of been waylaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, Cambridge is still working out how to allow um, doctoral students the opportunity to submit online. Mm. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know what that process will look like. So I'm, um, I'm not really writing toward a goal um, date right now, except except for the for you know a hope that I will have like a full draft completed in May, and then maybe I'll be Doctor McDaniel later on in the fall. <laughs> so I had a few had a few weepy moments actually about that a couple of weeks ago. So that's why I'm laughing because I'm in a better place right now. But it, this has been a long journey into this dissertation so it's emotional (laughs) (laughs) do you have any sort of strategies or advice for anyone going through that process um i don't i mm, i mean i can tell you what i do which is (laughs) um (laughs) I have a schedule um, and that is me exercising, uh, it's me taking a bath, it's me drinking a lot of water, it's me taking my time when I'm moisturizing. Um, <laughs> like, you know, people really don't pay attention to, you know, when they're putting on like lotion or shea butter, like take your time with that. That actually is, it gives you some space for reflection. Um, and gratefulness with your body. Um, And then when you are tired and when you can't write and when you are um, crying and you are in bed, 
give yourself space to be all those things. Um, and, you know, yeah, and have a good support system and maybe hope that your university has access to online um, <laughs> counseling support. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're you're right. It's important to be mindful of what we're doing every sort of moment in our lives. Um, it's great advice. Um, well, um, Bree, thank you for for sharing and reading from your book. Um, it was it was really great to hear it come alive. Like I had a sort of way of reading it in my mind and out loud, but it was really good to to hear you read it. Um, so thank you. Um, we're also joined on the episode. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so Seda Elliott is also on, on the line with us. Um, Seda Elliott is an award-winning author, scholar, and activist. She is the writer of essays, novels, plays, stories for children, and poetry, including her most recent collection, Say Her Name. She has a PhD in American Studies from NYU and has taught Black studies at the college level and works with youth. Her poetry has been published in New Daughters of Africa, We Rise, We Resist, We Raise Our Voices, The Cave Canem Anthology, The Ringing Ear, Black Poets Lean South, Check the Rhyme, an anthology of female, female poets and MCs, and Coloring Book, an eclectic anthology of fiction and poetry by multicultural writers. She is the author of over 30 books for young readers. She was born and raised in Canada and currently lives in Pennsylvania. Um, Sada, thank you for, for joining us. Um, you have a really prolific career. Um, can you tell us more about how you sort of became a writer? I Did you just say, can I tell you why I became a writer or how? <laughs> both. You can answer both questions. <laughs> Uh, Brie, can you repeat the question? <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, so, Zeta, can you tell us about how you became a writer? Or both tell us how you became a writer, why you became a writer? Uh, okay. Sorry about that, Victor. I'm, I'm having a little difficulty hearing. Um, so, let's see. I decided when I was a teenager, about 13 years old, that I wanted to be a writer. And I had a really supportive English teacher up in Toronto because I'm Canadian and I grew up there. Uh, Nancy Vickert was my English teacher for two years and she really encouraged me and uh, read my work really closely and just took me aside and said, you know, if you want to be a writer, you will be. Uh, and I went home and started to write my first novel and it was so terrible uh, that I threw it out. And that is rare because I keep just about everything I write, but that was so bad that I... I checked it and I sort of realized at that point that writing was more than a notion. Um, and I think most of the writing I did was, you know, academic writing for school, but I really enjoyed writing essays and I got to college and was still writing essays and then started writing for the campus newspaper. Uh, and then my last semester of my last year of college, I had my first black educator. I had never had a black teacher in my life. And suddenly wow. I had this professor and he was teaching us Jamaica Kincaid and my friend Kate loaned me her copy of Toni Morrison's Beloved and her cassette of <laughs> Mary J. Blige's What's the 411? And so I had sort of <laughs> a 
those three storytellers, Black women storytellers uh, in my head for the first time. And I, I just felt like I had to do an immediate course correction. Uh, and I kind of went back to that idea of being a writer because I think when you're reading so much European literature by um, mostly deceased white people, <laughs> you start to think that your story has to sound a certain way or be set in a certain place. And it wasn't until I started discovering stories told from uh, within Black communities and Black families and Black cultures that I realized I had something specific and unique that I could contribute, but I didn't think I could do it in Canada. Um, I really had no Black Canadian role models uh, in terms of writers. And so I came to the United States because my dad was a citizen and I applied for a green card and I applied to graduate school and I started studying African-American literature in a graduate program at NYU where almost all my professors were black and almost all my classmates were black. And I was just in Brooklyn and majority black Brooklyn, just in heaven. Um, <laughs> wow. But I was working with kids at the same time that I was in graduate school and I couldn't find the books that they needed. So I started to write books for them. I couldn't get my first adult novel published. Um, so I started trying to write for kids and to get that published. And I had more success there. Uh, I had some success writing plays. I just, you know, I was interested in trying a lot of different things. So I think writing for me has been um, a really great way to encourage growth in myself because I tend not to be afraid to try things in writing because it's so private and I'm just sitting at my computer. I can just do whatever I want, you know, having right. had a childhood where I felt um, that I didn't have a lot of control over my situation. When I was storytelling, I absolutely had control over the narrative. And so writing has always been really empowering for me. Uh, and I, you know, I really wish hope that I can help other people experience that because when you've grown up in a culture and a society that tells you, you don't matter and you should be invisible or silent or, um, you know, I think about Yamiche Sindor standing up to the president every day in these daily briefings. She's so brave and awesome. And yeah. I just think more of us need to do that because it's very easy as a young black girl to get shut down and to feel like that's your place is to be quiet and to let, especially to let men and black men and black boys stand up and speak and assume leadership positions. But I think black women's storytelling tradition is powerful and uh, we, we've got to keep it going. You're right. <laughs> um, would you like to share cool. any poem from your I think collection? we might have lost Victor. <laughs> oh, no. I, can, yeah, I got I, an I'm, error message. Victor, are you there? I'm still here. Oh, no. Um, oh, oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> right, uh, Brie, I'll have hey, to ask for, for hey, your Victor. help um, since it since like I'm cutting <laughs> off. <laughs> um, but I, I asked, um, would you like to share any of, of the poems from your collection? Is he saying something? Okay. I think, I'm not sure if Brianna can hear you, but I think I heard most of that, which was, could I read a few poems from my collection? Yeah. So that's oh, what I'm going to do. <laughs> Great. Okay. I cannot hear him at all. <laughs> so my first collection of poetry came out in January, and I was able to celebrate that in D.C. with you and Brianna, which was wonderful. Right. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it is another rainy day. <laughs> But I am going to read a poem called Self-Care. Uh, and then I, maybe I'll read a couple of other poems if we have time. So Self-Care I wrote because um, I try to talk as often as I can about the fact that I have lived with mental illness since I was a teenager. And it runs in my family. 
and unfortunately, my mother uh, wouldn't talk about it, and my father wouldn't talk about it. Um, and then I found out that my grandparents had it. So we have these generations of people who have been trying to find ways to manage anxiety and depression, some more successful than others. And I have learned now that I'm close to 50 years old, I have learned to be a bit more uh, compassionate with myself and cut myself some slack. So I know what I need to do to manage my uh, mental health, but some days are better than others. And that's what this poem represents, self-care. Some days it's okay to eat cupcakes instead of kale, to pull on stretchy pants and a hoodie, curl up on the sofa and watch online videos of baby goats prancing in pajamas. It's okay to curl into your pillow when there's no one else to hold and let your tears soak the foam. Then order a large three-topping pizza and finish that pint of coffee toffee bar crunch without anybody's help. Other days, you can go for a long run, hit the gym, or walk in the park, find a body of water, breathe deep lungfuls of fresh air, see a matinee by yourself, put on your cute clothes, take a selfie, have a salad with your slice, doodle in your journal, pet a dog you don't own, see the beauty in small things. See the beauty in yourself, ease and even as you don your armor to make it through another day. Yeah. And so I should just say, I just ordered some Chinese food. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I went to the farmer's market this morning, so (laughs) I loaded up on all my fruits and vegetables and then came home and ordered Chinese food. So uh, (laughs) uh, the next poem I'm going to read is called We Shall Overcome which of course is a refrain that most people know from the civil rights movement. Um, And all around me here in Lancaster, things are blooming, which is wreaking havoc on my allergies and my asthma, but it's still lovely Mm. to sit at my breakfast table and look out the window and see a beautiful magnolia tree. And the feeder on my back deck has been um, very popular with a pair of cardinals. So I love to see them as well. Mm. Uh, And so this poem is about remembering to stop and see the beauty in our world. We shall overcome. Don't let the beauty of this world lose its allure. Remember, even roses can climb walls. We have been designed to overcome. And we need a little hopeful uh, poetry these days, at least I do. Um, It can be very easy to get discouraged, especially if you watch the news as much as I do. And sometimes you need to just pause and focus your gaze on something different. Um, Yeah. The last poem I'm going to read is called A Big Blue Sky Poem, which I wrote in response to one of my favorite poems by Nikki Giovanni. And she graciously allowed me to reprint her poem for Sandra in the book, uh, free of charge, I might add, which was very generous. And in that poem, which is from the late 1960s, the Black Power, Black Arts Movement, she's talking about how she wants to write a poem, but she's in this moment of intense political upheaval. You know, it's time for the revolution and revolution doesn't lend itself to, you know, sweet rhyming poems. And her neighbor wants her to write a tree poem or a sky poem. And she's looking at her urban environment and doesn't see the inspiration that her neighbor thinks she should find. And she ends the poem by saying, perhaps these are not poetic times at all. And maybe she should clean her gun and check her kerosene supply. 
And I love that poem because at the end of it, perhaps these are not poetic times at all, but she has just written the most brilliant poem. Um, and she's really talking about the Black poet and whether Black poets should always be producing protest art, whether there's an expectation that poetry should rhyme and should be about nature. And that's really coming out of sort of this European tradition Um and what does it mean if you don't see in your environment the things that are supposed to represent beauty? And so I wanted to write about uh, a big blue sky poem and the ways in which we can find beauty in our, uh, in our neighborhoods. A big blue sky poem. A sparrow pecks at crumbs in a Brooklyn gutter, builds a nest from the scraps of others' lives, She teaches her young how to forage so they too can soar into the big blue sky. The tree that is their home was once a seed, small as its chance of survival. Yet now that oak towers above us, its roots strong enough to rupture concrete. In desperate times, search the city for signs of survival. Remember that we all live beneath the same big blue sky that stretches unbroken over borders, walls, seas, all the things that divide us. Beyond Earth's dome, sky blue deepens to infinite blackness. Stars swirl and burn in boundless galaxies. That is the source to which we will return, for we are made of starshine and clay. When Sojourner's ma'am wept for her stolen children, she looked up at the stars and through the veil of her tears knew that starlight shone upon them too. So love, when you find yourself raging beneath the big blue sky, know that you are not alone. When night falls, we will stand each in our corner of the world and find solace in the same bright stars. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for reading those. <laughs> um, yeah. So I know that you do a lot of work with students. Um, how do they respond to this collection of poems? Is, is Victor talking? I think, Victor, did you say how do teens respond to this collection? Yeah, how have they responded when you've done sort of workshops or just general work with them? Okay, uh, so the book came out in January, and uh, I was actually doing quite a bit of traveling in January and February, um, mostly around Dragons in a Bag, uh, which is my middle grade uh, series. So I haven't actually done that many presentations on Say Her Name. I think I've done maybe just two with teenagers, some locally here in Lancaster. Uh, There were a group of teens, teen poets at a community center called The Mix. And they very kindly agreed to help me make a microfilm. So we made a short video for one of the poems in Say Her Name. And we were hoping to make three, but the pandemic kind of quashed that. Um, And, you know, they were flipping through the book and picking out the poems that they liked best. And it was really surprising because there are poems in this collection that I really don't like, (laughs) that I don't think are that strong and that I would have voted off the island. But, you know a couple of editors and friends thought that they were worth including. And surprisingly, those are the poems that that a lot of the students point to. Um, There's a villanelle talking about, you know, where, 
where our future is. And I was thinking about Octavia Butler and her book, Parable of the Sower, this dystopian novel and the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're this sort of migrant caravan of marginalized people who are searching for freedom and they're heading north, which is the traditional trajectory for African-Americans, at least historically, to head north to Canada. And then they just, they start to realize, you know, there's really nowhere on this planet we can go and be safe. Maybe we should be looking at the stars. Maybe that really is our destiny. Um, And that was a poem that really connected with a lot of the young people. A lot of them are also immigrants like me. Um, And certainly in a time of pandemic, uh, you start to wonder, you know, where, where is our sanctuary? So I think the young people that I've spoken to, almost all of them are already poets. Uh, When I did the reading at Uncle Bobby's in Philadelphia, we were able to open up the floor and some, uh, some young poets shared their work. And I think a lot of people do take refuge in poetry and in their ability to express themselves in a way that doesn't have to be completely coherent. It can be fragmented. You know, I think for me in particular, writing about trauma, um, you know, it can be hard to, to form full sentences sometimes to describe how you're feeling. Although coming from an academic background, I'm actually pretty good at going on and on um, and thinking and analyzing. <laughs> <laughs> right, Brie? <laughs> But when you have to actually stop and write about how you feel, I think that's that's really different. And I remember when I when I was writing my dissertation ages ago, you know, my friend allowed me to use her poetry to talk about pain and trauma. And it helped a lot because I I wasn't confident enough to include my own poetry, but she had written about a condition, a physical condition we both share, and and that was really helpful. So I'm not entirely sure how young people are reacting. I've gotten a huge response from um, educators, and that's been great. We were supposed to have a panel at the Texas Library Association last week, and of course that was canceled. So um, I recorded some poems and just reached out to educators and said, you know, if you'd like my writing workbook, I'm happy to send the PDF to anybody who needs it. And since a lot of teachers are working online now uh, and a lot of students are at home, I hope that... uh, that can be useful to them. Okay. Mm. Then do you have any advice on how to be a better reader of poetry? Bree, did you hear that? No, I can I can I can um, tell when Victor is talking. I can say it again. Um, just, but I cannot in reading hear poetry. Um, do you have any advice that you can offer readers to sort of be better readers of poetry, should the poem be read out loud? Should it, um, should it be read in our head or? <laughs> um, um, I think the question is, is there advice around reading poetry? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so mm. um, one of the things I've said is that, you know, poetry is for everyone, but not every poem is for everybody. And I think... I think one of the reasons poetry can be really intimidating to a lot of people is that it feels like there are a lot of rules. And I know I certainly felt that way that I didn't know how to read certain poems correctly. And sometimes there were poems that were acclaimed and everybody loved them and I didn't like them and what was wrong with me and why didn't I get it? And maybe I was missing something. And you tend to, right, you internalize that and you think, well, there's something wrong with me. And then you just say, well, then poetry's not for me. Um, so I, I try to tell people that, you know, as there's a poem in the, in the book where I talk about, you know, there's more than one way to be a poet. And so 
if you're into spoken word and you like really dramatic, performative um, presentations, that's great. And if you don't like that, that's okay too. Uh, it's okay if you just want to write haiku and keep them in your journal. Um, I think poetry generally is an oral art form and it's meant to be heard, A-U-R-A-L, and it's meant to be spoken aloud. Um, mm. But there is that kind of recognizable dead poet's voice. <laughs> and I often hear you know, the great literary poets um, read in such a way that you just think, oh God, like, are you trying to bore people? Because the poem is actually quite good, um, but the engagement is not. And I have a friend, quite a few of my friends are poets, and one of them actually teaches a poetry performance class just to help people read their poems in a way that makes it more accessible and engaging to an audience, to a broad audience, mm. not just people who read poetry journals, because I'm not one of those people. Um, but I think the, the main thing is to, to find a way in, right, to find an access point. And so the good thing about having a collection of poetry is that it's 50 poems. And <laughs> there's a pretty good chance at least one of those poems is going to work for you. And it's an illustrated book, so the pictures might help draw some folks in as well. And you know what? If you don't like a poem, turn the page. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And if you do look a poem, think about what it is that appeals to you, um, and then think about how you might try that yourself. I, you know, I don't really identify as a poet. I'm a writer and I write different things and poetry is one of those things. But I think it's important to, to sort of, I don't want to say not take poetry seriously, but to not take it so seriously that you start to feel as though it, it belongs in a sphere that you don't belong in because poetry really is for everybody. Um, and, you know, June Jordan is one of my sheroes and, you know, the fact that she was working at that center, heading the center of poetry for the people, um, that's really what poetry is for. It's meant to serve and it's meant to serve as a bomb and to uplift and to connect people. Uh, and I subscribe to the poem a day. So I start every day reading a poem and that's been a really good practice for me. Because, you know, there are days when I'm like, oof, I don't like that poem and I don't even make it to the end and I just hit delete and move on. But I know that that doesn't mean that somehow poetry isn't for me. I just, you know, didn't connect with that one particular poem. Do you have any advice uh, for anyone that is interested in writing poems? Um, you say you're a writer who writes poetry. Um, what would be your advice for anyone who's interested in, in writing some poems themselves? Yeah, I think if you're interested in writing, um, a really good thing to do is to read as much as you can. Um, and if you're interested in poetry specifically, it's good to try to read lots of different kinds of poetry and lots of different kinds of poets. Uh, I think writing is a practice. And so whether you're writing a dissertation, or whether you're writing a haiku, um, whatever it is, it's really a good idea to develop a writing practice. And that means what my English teacher told me all those years ago when I was a teenager was to write every day. You just make a commitment and then you write every day. And that doesn't mean you sit down and write 100 pages or that you write something brilliant and profound every time you sit down. But it means you set aside time in your life and a space within your home or somewhere in your community that is devoted to the production of your ideas and, and their expression through words. And so... It can be something as simple as saying, I'm going to try to write for 10 minutes every day and, you know, get one of those composition notebooks that are 99 cents. Or if you can, you want to type on your phone, that's cool too. Um, but the main thing is to say, 
I'm going to dedicate this space to allowing myself to express myself. And when you give yourself permission to do that, and you make it an important dedicated time in your day, then that really sort of frees you up to explore what you want to say. I mean, writing in a journal, that counts as writing time. Um, writing a blog. I spend a lot of time writing emails every morning. I think that counts as writing. Um, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm working on a series of quarantine poems, <laughs> Corona poems. <laughs> and uh, it actually helps, you know, it helps to get to the end of the day and, and sort of reflect on what I was feeling during the day, what I did, what I experienced. I have one poem that I started because I, I, have started taking walks at night. I used to run in the morning and now I take walks at night because there are fewer people around. And I, every night I'm out and I just feel like I'm gathering observations. Like I'm remembering, I come home every night with something new that I can add to that poem. So the poem isn't finished and it's not particularly coherent at this point, but at, at some point I'll be able to shape it into something. And the main thing is that I'm, I'm looking, you know, I'm forcing myself to stop obsessing in my head over what if, what if, what if, what if, and I'm, I'm listening to, you know, the wind chimes and I'm looking at the daffodils and the way they drowse at night. And you just sort of slow down and change your focus. Um, and I think if you want to write poetry, you know, give yourself permission to be honest, um, right when you're happy, right when you're scared, right when you're sad. Um, and if you're not feeling anything, write, write that down. I'm not feeling anything today. It's really about valuing all of your feelings and all of your words and giving yourself permission um, to take time and express yourself because your voice matters and your story matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it sort of reminds me of what you say in your introduction, that the most radical act of all is to feel something. And that's yeah. Really... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, we're sort of over our, our time <laughs> and i thank you all <laughs> thank you all for um for joining me and i'm sorry I apologize I, for the it is so funny because um, all i'm is hearing there, is how that can our listeners get in touch with you uh, or, or learn more about your work and so it's just oh no so brie can't hear but i think victor was just thanking us for this conversation and we are over our time and so it's it's time for us to wrap it up but thank you very much to dcpl for uh allowing <laughs> us to do this podcast <laughs> and we yeah. are having our challenges but you know we shall overcome <laughs> so thank you victor <laughs> for bringing us together and take care you two thank Cheers. you Sarah, and thank you everyone.